Hello and welcome to the Big Idea podcast from the University of Edinburgh. I'm Ranald Leesk and in this edition we'll examine one of the bloodiest periods of 20th century European history, the Spanish Civil War. The conflict, which was in many ways a taster of the brutality that would soon be seen during the Second World War, lasted from 1936 to 1939 and witnessed the deaths of hundreds of thousands of people. The effect on Spain remained to this day, with the conflict still a highly contested period of the country's past. As the University of Edinburgh marks 100 years of the teaching of Spanish with a special exhibition, I'm joined by two experts from the School of History to focus on the Civil War. What happened during those three years? Why did it happen? And what are the lasting effects of the war? Dr Julius Ruiz is a senior lecturer who specialises in the study of 20th century Spain. His books have examined repression by both sides during and after the war. I'm also joined by Dr Fraser Rayburn, also from the School of History, Classics and Archaeology. Fraser will be giving a talk on the connections between Scotland and the Spanish Civil War on the 1st of May. More information on that at the university website. And Fraser, that connection between Scotland and Spain with regards to the Civil War is a a very interesting one with hundreds of Scots who travelled to fight in Spain. Why was it that that happened? Scots were responding, just like so many people across the world were responding, to what was happening in Europe over the course of the 1930s. Uh, We're all familiar, I think, with uh, the rise of fascism in Italy, the rise of Nazism in Germany, and... I think it should come as probably no surprise to anyone that people in other countries, including Scotland, but everywhere else really, were immensely concerned and were looking for ways that they could sort of contribute personally to stopping fascism expanding further. So when you know we get round to sort of the summer of 1936, we see a, a continent really, a world which is poised to understand what happens in Spain within this lens of the struggle between democracy and fascism. And what we see is that Scotland, just like the rest of the world, responds on a massive scale to what is seen as a fascist attempt to overthrow a democratically elected Spanish Republican government. And I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that this sort of ensuing solidarity uh, from Scotland is probably the largest single solidarity campaign for an international cause seen in the 20, in 20th century Scottish history. As you mentioned, we see over 500 volunteers from Scotland go to fight directly in Spain, uh, for the most part on behalf of the Spanish Republic. But we also see thousands upon thousands of activists uh, take part in sort of fundraising, political solidarity efforts, uh, which are really sustained throughout the entire conflict. We see uh, Scottish activists raise tens, if not hundreds of thousands of pounds. So we're talking about millions or tens of millions in today's money. Um, we see huge efforts on the part of Scots from really all over the country, but especially in, you know, the kind of um, industrial heartlands of Scotland. You know, Scotland's still obviously a very heavily industrialised country, very strong trade union movement and very strong left wing political traditions. So we see a huge response from Scots. But this is part of a huge global response to the Spanish Civil War that's really quite unprecedented. Well, one of those who volunteered from Scotland was John Dunlop, and he was at that stage a, a chartered accountant trainee uh, from Glasgow. And we'll hear a short clip of him uh, interviewed in the 1980s. When the war in Spain broke out, uh, I was a young chartered accountant student in Glasgow. And... 
a few months before that, I had begun to take an interest in politics and had, in fact, uh, gone so far as to join the Communist Party because it seemed to me that time that was the party to join. And, uh, of course, reading the Daily Worker and reading the other press of the day, uh, I was very well aware of what was happening in Spain. And it seemed to me that um, in Spain great injustice was being perpetrated on the people of Spain by uh, the organizations that had revolted against the legal government of the day. I was also disgusted the fact that the other democratic governments in Europe uh, were not doing anything at all to help the legal government in Spain uh, against an attack which obviously was being supported by both the, the fascist government of Italy and uh, the Nazi government in Germany. And I felt very strongly that in, if they were allowed to continue their attack on the people of Spain, that it wouldn't be so very long before uh, the rest of Europe were going to be engulfed in a war and uh, the war would be definitely provoked and uh, commenced by uh, the German and Italian governments, as indeed it proved to be the case. I find it extremely difficult to explain the feelings that swept through me when this the singing of the international started up. Here were we all young men from really all the nations in Europe and some from outside Europe as well, uh, joining in this one song in their own language which seemed to express a yearning for a unity of mankind. And yeah, I find it extremely difficult to explain how exhilarating this was. And I don't think I've ever felt the same feeling at any other time in my life. An excerpt from an interview with John Dunlop there from the 1980s, a Scot who served with Republican forces in Spain and who obviously felt it his duty as a communist to travel there and, and fight against General Franco and his attempt to overthrow the Spanish government. Um, Fraser, um, you had mentioned earlier the, the huge numbers of Scots, 600 or so, who fought for the Republicans and and travelled to Spain to do so. Um, what was the, the motivation? What was this passion, do you think, that they felt? I, think, I, I really liked the, the clip you've just played there from Dunlop because I think he does... I mean, he's clearly not the most emotional of men, but you really do feel his attempt to explain just how gripping the Spanish conflict was if you were, like him, on the left, particularly a member of the Communist Party... Spain was not something that was, you know, it's kind of something you glanced at over coffee in the newspaper of a morning and then forgot about. Spain was a very consuming issue. I think the closest parallel I can think of is the Vietnam War in the 60s and 70s, that kind of issue that really grips the hearts and minds of a generation. And I think Dunlop's testimony there really brings together this sense of emotionality, this sense of being incredibly attached to a cause, but also attached to 
what the cause meant on a very sort of personal level, that kind of feeling of unity and solidarity that he felt when he crosses the border into Spain and is suddenly part of this multinational, multilingual environment. Um, but they're all still singing together. They're all still singing this one song. And especially for a communist such as Dunlop, I think it's a really interesting insight into exactly what, why Spain became such a, a touch point for them. Because if you, like Dunlop, believe in international solidarity as being you know, a shaping force of world politics, as an ideal to aspire to, Spain in many ways was the epitome of what international solidarity could achieve. Tens of thousands of people from across just about every nation of Europe, every, you know, most nations of the world, were coming together to stand against fascism in Spain. We've got a sense from his testimony of just how central Spain looked in that struggle, viewed from this kind of vantage point of the 1930s. Spain was readily understood by men like Dunlop as being the focal point of the struggle against fascism. This is where the front line was. If you believed that fascism needed to be opposed in 1936 or 1937, Spain was where you wanted to be. That clip we heard of John Dunlop, he obviously is very emotional, very uh, committed to his, his um, politics. But of course, Julius, in terms of Western governments, we have a far more sober reality facing um, the prime ministers and presidents in places like France and Britain. They just simply didn't want to become involved in Spain. Yes, that's right. Um, you know, I think... You know, there's a paradox here that we talk about a war democracy, and yet um, only two avowedly revolutionary states, uh, Soviet, the Soviet Union on the one hand and Mexico on the other, actually uh, supply the republic um, with arms. Um, you know, as far as Western governments um, are concerned, um, first the first point to say is that they did not accept that this was a war of democracy uh, against um, fascism. Um, they saw, like... Uh, many others, uh, the revolution in the Republican zone um, in the summer of 1936 and the massacre of, of, of uh, around 7,000 um, priests. To Catholics in particular, the idea of supporting a government that seemed to be complicit in that um, massacre was, you know, was anathema and politically unacceptable. Uh, and this fed into broader um, tendencies as regards anti-communism that existed in Europe since 1917. So, in other words, um, Spain was seen primarily in terms of revolution, of, of um, communism, uh, rather than of democracy and fascism. Uh, on the other hand, um, it, it, uh, there was also a fear um, in Western Europe, also in the United States, that Spain would spark a more general war. Um, and if there's one thing um, that, um, you know, the average European uh, didn't want was a war that would repeat or exceed the horrors of the First World War. Uh, and there was a particularly fear of annihilation uh, by mass bombing. So in other words, it was seen as politically um, impossible, even if Western governments wanted to do it, uh, to uh, support a policy that would make a general war more likely. I'd like now to play you an excerpt from an interview from the 1980s with George Drever. He was a working-class communist from Leith in Edinburgh, and he travelled to Spain in 1938 after he graduated from the University of Edinburgh. I remember, I think it must be in December of 37, at one of the 
party meetings, Bill, Fred Douglas, who was the organiser then, he said, he said, we've got a letter from the centre, said that things are very difficult in Spain and we want our best comrades to go. So I, w I was single, I wasn't married at that time. So I went, went along, I said, right home, Fred, I said, put my name down. He said, why do you want to go? <laughs> I, said, you, I, I said, you've just told us that they want the best comrades. I consider myself one of the best comrades. And I'm sure, of course, the people who know me now do the same. So uh, he said, right home. So in a few days, I uh, had got my uh, railway ticket, gave you a railway ticket. I hadn't told my mother and father what I was doing. And I told uh, the girl who was, uh, who was, <laughs> who liked me, the night before I went. There was a, a sick man, and he was uh, to be taken to the hospital. Uh, he was in, in a covered uh, stretcher. And I remember that time there were actually two men at the front. I think there were six men, two at the front, two in the middle, and two of us. And we walked then through the streets of uh, uh, Valle de Lide to the hospital. And it was a very uh, strange experience walking through lighted streets, people living a normal life <laughs> to the hospital. But I can remember, of course, how tired, I was certainly very tired, uh, carrying this, only a sixth part of this stretcher man uh, before we got to the hospital. When we got to the hospital, they put him in, took him into the um, ward, presumably, the girls put him, the girls were nuns, the nurses, uh, uh, put him in the bed. And uh, some of the Spaniards, of course, said who I was. You're an ex-Ranjerosi. I remember the nun saying, Pobre Chico, poor boy. Looking back nearly half a century later on the, the Spanish War and your part in it, uh, any sort of reflections uh, from what you've been saying, you, I can take it for granted, you, you would not have done other than that. You have no regrets whatever about going to Spain. None, none whatever. Any, any general sort of reflections, George, you know, 50 years later? None at all, except the way I thought then about the world, people in the world, I still think that way and still act and behave uh, uh, in such a way that I go forward the struggle of the people, mainly, of course, the working-class people. George Jeever speaking there in an archive interview from the 1980s. George was later captured by Franco's forces and spent time in a prisoner of war camp, but thankfully he made it back to Scotland. Fraser, he was obviously a, a, an avowed communist, and I suppose at that time in 1930s Britain and in other countries, the sheer horror of, of Stalin's uh, Soviet Union were, were not publicly widely known and, and wouldn't be until the sort of Khrushchev uh, era. Was there a sort of um, a slight innocence about people like George? I mean, as, as you could tell from George's uh, testimony there, um, he was a lifelong believer and he did, you know, continue to believe in communism until he died. And, you know, we have, I, I think you have to respect that belief. But I, I think you're, you are quite right that um, our knowledge of Stalinism and our knowledge of, you know, what exactly was happening in Soviet Russia at the exact same time these individuals were in Spain is makes it very difficult to appreciate that individuals could believe in communism in the 1930s with, I suppose you could say, an innocence, but also, I suppose, a lack of knowledge of what could and was going wrong. And we need to be very careful when we're looking at this history not to read back our knowledge and assume that 
what they're doing in Spain is entirely cynical. And th this is actually can be a huge problem because when we actually look at the way the international brigades functioned on a day-to-day -day basis, politics was interwoven, and very Stalinist politics. I mean, these are individuals who are accused of being, you know, Stalin's dupes, you know, a common turn army. And, you know, on one level, it's entirely correct. They were, for the most, you know, the majority of them were communists. It was being run by common turn appointees. It was being run by Communist Party members. But that doesn't mean what we think it does in all ways. You know, for example, there are political commissars, you know, a phrase we might be familiar with in the context of the Soviet Union. But these political commissars, by and large, are not, you know, shadowy men in, you know, caps shooting people behind the lines. But they're, for the most part, there to look after the morale of the international volunteers. And for the most part, we can see from their reports, that's what they're actually concerned with. There's less cynicism in their role than we might assume. And this also applies to some of the darker sides of Stalinism. Uh, for instance, you know, Stalin's obsession with Trotsky and Trotskyites is well known. And in the Soviet Union at this point in time, in 1937, 1938, being called a Trotskyite was a death sentence. But in Spain, even though these, this same terminology was in use, you know, you would see people be labeled Trotskyites in international brigades. You know, there, there are these infamous lists of people with sort of names and, you know, adjectives and slurs against them, you know, Trotskyite, saboteur, spy. But what's really striking is that very few of them actually have any problems in Spain. You know, they might be called a Trotskyite behind their backs or by their political commissar, but this isn't actually ever used as a basis for purges or a basis for punishment. Indeed, what I found in my research is that often these labels were applied after someone had done uh, something that the uh, International Brigade's leadership didn't approve of. So if someone, say, deserts the front, they would go back and add, you know, always oh, clearly a Trotskyite to his file. They hadn't decided he was a Trotskyite and then he deserted. So there's a lack of cause and effect that's going on with Stalinism in practice here. And I think we need to be careful of assuming that these kind of Stalinist practices that we're very familiar with in the context of the Soviet Union were fully in force in Spain. I think that the Communist Party faces a lot more constraints in Spain. You know, Spain is not a single party state. Stalinists do not run Spain. And also this is this is in kind of the full eye of the media. So if British communists start, you know, executing each other, the Daily Mail is going to hear about it. This is going to be front page news. And the party knows this. And they're very careful not to kind of step over too many lines when it comes to enforcing party discipline on their subordinates. Arguably the most famous person to have, to have gone to Spain to fight as, as a foreign volunteer would be George Orwell, the author. He was wounded and, and then uh, all sorts of things happened, which he describes in his book, Homage to Catalonia. Julius, he was obviously angry at the, the divisions within the site he was taking up arms for. George Orwell's a very interesting case as a, uh, as a Briton, as an intellectual who went to fight um, in Spain, but saw the war in slightly different terms to John Dudlop or George uh, Drever. Um, that yes, this was a war against fascism, but it was also a war for the revolution. It was a war to create a, a new society rather than defending, primarily de defending um, uh, democracy. Um, even so, George Orwell did uh, apply to join the international brigades, but the factional fighting, the famous May Days in Barcelona in 1937 between the different sides in the Republican camp um, meant that he was fighting on the, the Poom side against the Republican and Catalan authorities um, on the other side of the barricades. Um, and that struggle, that very famous struggle in May 1937, which to many on the left, the revolutionary left, has been portrayed as the end of 
the hopes of a new society, of a new Spain in favour of counter-revolution, um, Stalinism. It's one of the reasons why in certain circles, you know, the international brigades are still portrayed in Stalinist terms as the Comintern army on the left, and not on the right, but on, on, the, on the left. In some ways, uh, this type of narrative has a, correla- uh, has a correlation with um, how the Franco regime uh, depicted uh, the international brigades for well for 40 years from its existence from 1936 uh, till Franco's death in November 1975 as a sort of the vanguard of Stalinism as evidence that Spain um, would become a Stalinist society had it not been for the providential uh, intervention of Franco and the and the nationalists. Fraser, how did the British government deal with the return of, of their citizens having fought abroad, um, people like John Dunlop and George Strever? Well, then as now, I suspect um, this was a difficult question um, because as we all know, I mean, just literally months after they come back, Britain itself becomes you know, embroiled in a war against a fascist power in Nazi Germany in September 1939. And so this raises this kind of question for, for everyone involved. So, well... Whose side are they on? Because on one hand, they have fought against fascism. They have fought this fight already. They are the people with the most immediate military experience. They've they've literally fought against German and Italians in Spain. Do we make use of this experience? You know, do we give them a role in this fight? But on the other hand, as we've explored, they are associated with revolution. They are associated with communism. Can they be trusted? as participants in this war. And this is these waters are very much muddied by the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact in August 1939 because communism's and the Communist Party's very clear anti-fascist stance over much of the 1930s is suddenly reversed, or literally overnight. And the attitude of communists towards the war effort is now very, very murky. This is now officially an imperialist war. And can communists be trusted to be sincere anti-fascists or was this all just, you know, kind of a ruse? You know, do they are they, they willing to sort of change their opinions on a dime? Um, what this meant, though, was that British authorities became relatively unconcerned about whether individuals had been to Spain or not, because this all predated these kind of very big policy shifts within the Communist Party. And what I found in my own research is that um, MI5, for instance, are much more concerned about whether individuals sort of continue on the party line after September 1939. And they're much more concerned about people who have shown a willingness to kind of... uh, adopt the Communist Party line that the war effort was an imperialist one that should be opposed. And so the, the, the question of whether they've been to Spain or not became somewhat secondary. And this is this is kind of completely cemented in mid-1940 with the fall of France and the realisation that Britain can not afford to waste any manpower whatsoever. So if they, if they don't call up communists, if they don't give them jobs in factories, then we're talking about thousands of people who aren't being used productively for the war effort. This doesn't mean, of course, that ex-volunteers from Spain or Communist Party members didn't face discrimination in the armed forces or the workplace. They absolutely did. Um, One of the favourite tricks of the government was to kind of assign communists to what they thought of as secondary roles. So a lot of senior communists sort of spent the war in sort of aircraft searchlight batteries uh, trying to spot planes in the sky because it was seen as being a safe place where they couldn't do too much damage. So there was an absolute attempt to kind of manage the participation of returned volunteers in this new anti-fascist war. But we equally we don't see the we don't see prosecutions 
no no volunteer was prosecuted for going to Spain. The only person who was prosecuted in the, in the post-war years was a man named David Springhall, uh, who was prosecuted in 1943 for passing secrets to the Soviets. So he had a contact in the air ministry who was caught smuggling documents out. And that was an open-shut case of espionage. And the Communist Party actually expels him. I don't think they had any idea what he was getting up to. This was done purely through the Soviet embassy. But he was the only International Brigade volunteer who ever went to prison. Meanwhile, Julius, um, back in Spain, General Franco has won. He is then uh, in power until his, his death in the 1970s. And um, how is the, the narrative, how does that develop in terms of within Spain as to how Spaniards regard the role of um, foreign fighters, be it for the international brigades or indeed for those smaller number who, who fought for Franco? Well, in October 1938, the Republican government officially withdraws the international brigades. And there's a great um, march, a great demonstration uh, through the streets of uh, Barcelona, filled with thousands of people uh, to celebrate the role that the international brigades had played in defending um, the Republic. And Dolores de Barudi, uh, more famously known as La Passionaria, or the, the Passion Flower, famously says, um, you are history. You are legend. Um, and then, of course, as you said, we have a 40-year interlude of the uh, the Franco uh, regime. Um, but once Franco dies in November 1975, uh, Republicans come back from exile, including um, Dolores Ibaruri, uh, Passionari herself. Uh, and um, there is... A, uh, in the first, for the first time in, in 40 years, the international brigades are celebrated for the role that they played in the defence of the Democratic uh, Republic. And it sort of culminates um, in, on the 60th anniversary with the uh, granting by the Spanish government of um, citizenship to those surviving members of the international uh, brigades. Not many if any international brigades actually took up the offer of Spanish citizenship because it meant that they would have to give up you know, their, their own original nationality. Uh, but in 2009, Spanish law was changed again to allow um, the very small number of international brigaders who were still alive to take up uh, dual nationality. Um, and this, you know, uh, was an extraordinary, I think, uh, recognition by the Spanish state of the importance of the international brigades uh, in the Civil War, but given the uh, central role uh, of the International Brigades in terms of, you know, the struggle against um, fascism, uh, it inevitably uh, produced uh, criticism by those um, on the right in particular uh, who were ha very happy to remind anyone that was interested that um, International Brigades tended to be communists, that they supported Stalin, uh, and uh, to this day, you'll see uh, memorials to the International Brigades in Spain, you know, covered in with graffiti with the words Stalinists or or our uh, murderers. Um, you know, so there is a sense of that sort of legacy of um, Francoism still surviving in Spain. And Fraser, any final thoughts from you on that point? It's really interesting to contrast the way in which the conflict is remembered in Spain and the International Brigade is remembered in Spain to the way that they're still remembered in Scotland. Um, they are literally still building memorials to the men and women from Scotland who went to fight or to aid the Republic during the 1930s. Uh, just last month, there was another memorial unveiled. It's dedicated to the British uh, seamen who 
helped break Franco's blockade of Republican Spain by you know bringing in food and medical supplies. Um, that's just on the north bank of the Clyde in in Glasgow. That joins another memorial on the north bank of the Clyde in Glasgow. So a wonderful statue of uh, La Passionaria, who Julius has just mentioned. And there are dozens of other memorials in sort of cities, towns, and villages across Scotland, everywhere where volunteers came from. There are plaques, there are benches, there are statues commemorating that choice. And it's striking, I think, that the memory is so positively received. You'll still see coverage of these volunteers in the national press, and it is very much a heroic story and one that is still, I think, rightfully celebrated by the communities they came from. But we do have to remember that the story that we tell ourselves in Scotland is not the story that Spaniards remember, and that it is a story with a great deal more shades of grey than the black and white version of history we often remember here. A reminder, perhaps, of the fact that history is very much still living and surrounds us every day. I'd like to thank my guests from the University of Edinburgh's School of History, Classics and Archaeology, Dr Fraser Rayburn and Dr Julius Ruiz. As I mentioned, Fraser's talk takes place on the 1st of May at 5pm at 50 George Square in Edinburgh. More information at the website. And the exhibition, celebrating 100 years of Spanish at the University of Edinburgh, runs until the 29th of June. Again, information at the website, ed.ac.uk. From me, Ronald Leask, thanks for listening to the Big Idea podcast from the University of Edinburgh.